flat is a state of mind. Get to know the people, science, and stories that make the Kansas outdoors more than flyover country. This is Flatlander Podcast, presented by the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks and the Kansas Wildlife Federation. What I see on my dirt is undescribable as the Bible. Have you taken her class yet? No, but I have wanted to every single time that that has been offered. But this last BOW, I was teaching wild game cooking and couldn't dip out. Yeah, I, I must admit, when I first was asked to teach it, I was like, this is going to be the most boring class no. ever. But yeah, all the feedback I've gotten, I mean, all the women that have taken it are very, very appreciative and, and spend a lot of time in those the three hours that we have together learning a lot and, and practicing and that's more than anything they just need practice it's yeah a, it's yeah a safe space to practice that's exactly it with a calm coach yeah, yeah. non-judgmental yeah no yeah. snarkiness yeah all right listeners what we're talking about is I know you clicked on this thinking you're going to hear about grasslands and woodlands mm-hmm. management and you are you will. but for a brief moment just stick with us <laughs> okay so becoming an outdoors woman is a workshop held twice a year by the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks that is designed to provide women with outdoor experiences that they may not have access to otherwise. And that encompasses everything, you know, from the typical hunting, fishing, shooting, that sort of stuff, all the way to how to back up a trailer properly. And so our special guest today, Vicki, is kind enough to offer that course. And yeah, I heard phenomenal things about it. So I'm jealous that I haven't been able to take it yet. Yeah. But I didn't realize when I first met you, you are a district wildlife biologist for some of my favorite parts of the state. And I'm really interested to get into that. So why don't we start off by having you tell us a little bit about yourself and where those locations are that you cover. Yeah. Yeah. So I am a district private lands wildlife biologist. And so I I actually cover the Southern Flint Hills, which who doesn't love the Flint Hills in Kansas? Yeah. Um, And then I also cover the, what's called the Chautauqua Hills in Kansas, which is a little bit lesser known, but also a very special place in Kansas and really doesn't encompass much of Kansas. So it's really unique, really cool, kind of comes out of Oklahoma into a little little point stretch just on the eastern edge of the Flint Hills. Um, kind of the oak savannas is also what they're kind of called. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where I work. And, and uh, you know, I kind of got into this field. Um, loving the outdoors. I didn't really hunt and fish growing up. I fished a little bit. Um, but my family was always pretty outdoorsy. Loved to go out to the park. Loved to go out to state parks and camp and, and stuff like that. So um Went to Colorado State and got my degree there. I'm originally from the East Coast, which yeah. what? so I'm what? definitely transplanted really? to Kansas and love it. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Hate the East Coast. Great place to visit. Okay. Not a great place to live. So <laughs> lots of history, you know, but just a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And Kansas is great. I transplanted here, love it, don't want to move out of it. So can, I consider myself a Kansan now. Okay, um, right on. Yeah. So, but yeah, so I went to Colorado State, got my degree there in wildlife biology, um, did a couple seasonal jobs, worked in New Mexico for the Forest Service, uh, doing bird research on the Rio Grande. Um, actually spent some time in Kansas working on prairie chicken um, for K-State, uh, trapping prairie chicken and, and 
traveling uh, traveling them around or following them around the <laughs> Flint Hills, um, you know, trying to get an idea of how their nesting is going and their brood rearing is going. And and uh, and then I worked for um, the military base out at Fort Bragg in North Carolina as a biologist briefly there before coming back to to Fort Hay State working on my master's there. Um, and then I've been here ever since. So I've been in the southern Flint Hills for about seven years now. My okay. mind is blown. I know. I would never have guessed you were from the East Coast. And at Fort Bragg, were you working on the woodpecker? Um, no, that was primarily game species. Okay. Um, we trapped and tagged rabbits and fox squirrels. Um, their fox squirrels out there are super cute, by the way. They have <laughs> little masks, look like little raccoons. Um and uh, did um, camera traps for turkeys and coyotes and deer and whatnot. So, did you always yeah. know this is what you wanted to do, or how, like how did you get in? This is such a niche field, really. It really kind of is. So, how did you go from East Coast? Yeah, we kind of camped and stuff to like boom, wildlife biologist. Well, so originally um, went to Colorado State to be a vet. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. That that animals. was the gateway drug. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was actually more just a friend of mine in college. Um, she was in the wildlife degree program, and a lot of my vet classes kind of coincided a lot with hers. Some of them were a little higher level. Um, and I, I just really loved her classes, and I was like, I'm going to follow what you're doing. And, <laughs> and I met, you know, people that were hunting and fishing all the time, and I started going out with them. And I was like, yep, this is, this is my niche right here. So Very good. Kind of how I got there. And I'm going to put you on the spot. What were you doing at 830 this morning when you first got into the office? <laughs> it's a new question of ours. Um, I was actually <laughs> unloading the live snakes that live at my office back into the office because I took them on a kids program for Saturday. We went to OK Kids Day at El Dorado State Park. That That's, is a great answer. I unloading love Unloading live snakes. Yeah. Yeah. I have all my three venomous snakes that can be found in the area at my office. What? <laughs> what? Did you, you didn't bring them? You didn't think that they would want to be on the podcast I as well? I, I thought a podcast, you know, they had to talk. They, you know, yeah. They, yeah. They're kind of shy. They're shy. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's cool. I'm, I'm delighted that you said, or you did not say I got in the office and started answering emails. Yeah. No. And Kent didn't say that either. That's I know. Great. We're in the wrong field. Yeah. <laughs> okay. okay, I would love to circle back to your areas of responsibility. Can you, for folks who maybe aren't from Kansas and aren't familiar with our landscape, can you kind of explain the difference between the Flint Hills and you mentioned the Chautauqua Hills? Is there a noticeable difference between the two? And if so, like how could people differentiate those in their mind? So most of the difference is actually more just the the soil and the rock that's in the ground. I mean, that's why they're named what they are, but that does change what grows there too and so the flint hills typically are going to be primarily all grasslands um just a sea of grass which is beautiful um and then the chautauqua hills um are characterized by a sandstone soil and rock structure and in that sandstone tends to grow these oak trees which normally do not grow up on uplands um, or, or hilltops, um, but they can grow in this sandstone soil, which is really shallow soil, but they still manage to grow really well, and it's just two specific species, a post oak and a blackjack oak. Oh, I love blackjack oaks. Yeah, and so they... <laughs> look like a turkey foot, right? Yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> and so they, the, that's where you tend to see the difference, is yes, it is still a grassland, um, and it is supposed to be more of a savanna, because there's, you know, but there's trees, you know, so there, there could be more scrubby trees, meaning like they're more shrub 
you know, level, not 30 foot tall, you know, mm. shade trees that mm-hmm. people think about when you think of about a park or something like that. Most of the time they're going to be more like a scrub oak, you know, kind of shorter, maybe 10 feet or less or, or 20 feet or less. And so that's the, that's the Chautauqua Hills or the Oak Savannas is also what they're called. Very cool. Cool. So you work in five counties, is it? I have five counties. I have Butler and Cali, which are the southern Flint Hills counties. Then that creeps into Greenwood County, Elk, and Chautauqua County. Um, and those counties on the eastern edge of those is the Chautauqua Hills. Okay. And I'm guessing throughout the year, your day-to-day is probably pretty variable, whether you're in the field or doing like a kid's event or in the office processing data. Is that fair? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Any, I, I don't have a typical day, which is great. I mean, I love that part of my job. I can go from a kid's program one day to trying to promote our walk-in hunting program another day to promoting our Habitat First program another day to actually physically going out and helping a landowner burn or helping the public lands guys burn or, or something like that. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a, plethora of very different stuff. I spend as little time in the office as possible, um, yeah. you know, but so obviously there are times when you have to spend time in the office. So I'm curious, um, I, I'm really interested in how people stay productive and also how they do like continuing education. And in the field of biology, it's so important to stay on top of the research and at least read papers or go to conferences. I'm just wondering what kinds of data and research inform most or some of your day-to-day work? So um, I always go to KNRC, which is Kansas mm. Natural Resources Conference that's held usually late late January, early February in Kansas. Um, and that's where I can get a lot of the up-to-date research on what's going on here in Kansas. Mm-hmm. Um, we do get a lot of, at the field level, um, trickle down from our supervisors, like, hey, this is good information. They'll send us the paper. They'll send us an email um, or a link or something and say, hey, you should read this. Um, and also in our regional meetings or our, our statewide meetings, our research guys come, like Kent, I know you had him on a podcast, um, He will, they will come and give us an update on research going on in Kansas too. So we stayed up to date there. Um, one of the other things I love to do is listen to podcasts. And yeah, there, there are yes. several great podcasts that are run by university type people um, that do a really good job of updating people, even, even the layperson, but also me as a research biologist, um, they update us on what's going on, you know, on research on the ground, not even just in Kansas, but on an ecological level. Do you have a recommendation? <laughs> so um, Natural Resources University. Oh, oh I've never yeah. heard of that one. Okay. That um, sounds good. Because it's they, not a murder podcast. Yeah, it's okay, not a murder podcast. Okay, that's, that's, yeah. okay. <laughs> I don't even know what to say because she I just hit you. the nail on the head. I know you. <laughs> So Natural Resources University podcast has, I think, three or four, quote-unquote, mini-podcasts underneath of them. It's a, They have a forest university, a habitat university, um, a pond university, and a fire university. Oh, wow. What? Yeah. And so it, basically, if you have any specific, and I think more recently, they started a turkey version mm-hmm. in there in the habitat universities. So, of course they did. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, turkey's just a big talk right now. And so, the, yeah, they've been talking about turkeys a lot. Um, and so, yeah, it's been a really good podcast. Um, there, there's a private lands one that kind of does a lot of what I do um, on a day-to-day basis. Um, and I don't know... I mean, I, I'm not a sponsor of our podcast, but they're a really good one. It's called Land and Legacy mm-hmm. Podcast, um, and they're out of southwest Missouri. Um, they get MDC, Missouri Department of Conservation, people on their podcast, as well as researchers, um, to talk about private land 
options, you know, how to manage your private land, which is exactly what I do on a regular basis. And so hearing them talk about what I do and kind of, you know, maybe they have a different way of talking or or saying things, or maybe it reconfirms how I'm doing telling people, you know, and so people can get, you know, landowners that are looking to do habitat work can get that same information from two different places, me and this other podcast. Yeah. So that's great. I'm over here downloading you're downloading yeah. the podcast. I love it. Yeah. I love it. She's on it. It's great. So I spend a lot of time in a vehicle. So I spend same. A lot of yes. Oh, I yes. bet. Yeah. Well, five counties. I mean, oh, come yeah. on. Yeah. For sure. yeah. yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that relationship, that private land, private land in a relationship. What, what is your assistance? Uh, how, you know, what is, what does that relationship look like? What off, what services are you offering? You know, what are they typically coming to you for? Yeah. So most of the time they're coming to me, they want to know, what they can do on their property to better it for wildlife. And and sometimes it's wildlife in general. What should it look like in Kansas? What should my property look like? Um, or they are looking more species relevant. Like, I, I want to do something for deer. I want to do something for turkey. I want to do something for quail. You know, and, and oftentimes if they improve one, oftentimes they can improve for others, you know, depending on what they choose to do. Um, so we give that technical assistance completely for free. I just go out on their property, drive around with them, talk about stuff, um, give them suggestions on podcasts to listen to. <laughs> um, and so that technical assistance is, is, is all free, and I, I can come out as many times as they want, you know, as long as I have time. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people do use me as their own private biologist. I go out there at least once a year, and we re-talk about stuff they've done or stuff they're thinking about doing and how that's going to benefit or how long it's going to take to see that benefit. Is there a minimum acreage that you'll... No. Really? So, like, let's say I live in the suburbs of Andover, and I want to know how to do something for pollinators. Could and I call Just you? in my backyard. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's sure. incredible. Yeah. I didn't know that, actually. Very cool. And if I don't know the answer, I, I've got websites and, and other people to turn to to, yeah. to answer questions on, on small-scale pollinator. You've got reach back. That's a term I learned in the working with the military. Reach back. You've got, like, a network. Yeah. Reach back. Reach back. Yeah. Oh, I like this. Get questions answered. Very cool. <laughs> so why don't we go, why don't we talk about Habitat First? Yeah. That's oh, yeah. We, yeah. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's a nice segue into Habitat yeah. First. So that is, that's the start of the Habitat First program is is consultation. Me going out there and, and visiting and, and discussing what options are available to you to make your property better for wildlife, for whatever specific wildlife or just wildlife in general. And then from there, um, then I can start talking about, okay, there might be financial assistance to to help cost share or help do the work you're looking to do out there. Um, You know, whether it be, and we're pretty well versed in federal programs with the Natural Resources Conservation Service, NRCS, um, and um, they're equipped, they have an equip program, environmental quality incentive program. um, And so we can help you get into that. Or we have this other program through our Habitat First program where we have some state cost share. Now, obviously, our pockets are not nearly as big as the NRCS pockets. So if I can push people towards going through the federal program, you know, it's a little more of a headache because, you know, the feds, there's a lot more paperwork. Um, But it's a good program and it'll get, it probably will get you more money in the long run to do that progress or that program. Um, and so it is a cost share. So we're not looking to have people make money on these programs. Um, make you know we don't want people making money off the federal government or the state agency um, to do habitat. But we do 
realize that habitat needs to be done and should be done, and we want to help people do that. So it's usually a cost share. You're talking anywhere from 60 to maybe even 80% of the estimated cost on doing some of these various projects. Mm -hmm. So what uh, cost share comes up a lot, that concept. So is that literally just the agency shares in the cost of a thing? Yeah. So let's take native grass planting. Uh We love to plant native grass. You know, if you're converting your ag field or, or even a, an old brome, which is a non-native grass, um, brome or fescue, both non-native grasses. If you're converting those into something that's going to be more beneficial for wildlife, like native grasses and, and flowers, forbs, um, then we can cost share on, because native, native grass seed is expensive. I mean, you're talking over $100 an acre. Oh. So if you got a 50-acre field, that's a lot of money. Um, and so we can help cost share on that. Then then, then you put in the cost of, of how much it costs to get it in the ground. You know, if you have to um, pay to rent a, a, a seed drill, um, the cost of a tractor or the fuel for that tractor, time if you're hiring somebody to put it in or if you're doing it yourself. Um, and so that, that all can add up. And so we cost share, meaning... You know, we assume the, the landowner is going to pay maybe 20% of this total estimated cost. We can pay, you know, that other 80 or, or 60 or, or whatever. So, so that's the share. How does the department determine which of those projects they're going to help assist payment with? So we try, we're trying to get more on a priority basis. You know, we have different practices that are higher priority in Kansas, Um you know, one of the things we're not doing is really planting trees, you yeah, know. We talked about that on the last episode. <laughs> yeah, so we're not really planting trees anymore. But you want to put some native shrubs in. Oftentimes in the Flint Hills, one of the things we're lacking is a good shrub component. So you want to put some native shrubs in, we might help with that. Native grass, like I said, we love planting native grass, helping to plant native grass or flowers for pollinators. Um, cutting trees, we love cutting trees, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially in the Flint Hills. Um, you know, so... Those types of things have priority over um, something like planting trees or, you know, in our Habitat First program, at least on my end, we're never paying for planting brome or fescue or anything Mm non-native, you know, so that's definitely out of the the question. Um, A lot of people ask about wetlands. That's not a priority in the Flint Hills. You know, there really isn't a place for wetlands in the Flint Hills, never have been, never will be, Um, and it's more it's too costly to try to get a wetland to fit in the Flint Hills versus trying to put a wetland somewhere where there should be wetlands right. you know, southeast Kansas southwest Kansas where those playas um, and so that's not a priority in my area so there's going to be different priorities in different areas too depending on where in the state you are and would you say the standard that you are working towards or working with is the eco region as it existed pre-european settlement or is that is that kind of too too much or how would you define or just maximizing biodiversity yeah (laughs) Yeah. um i I think the idea yes would be more pre-european settlement but i mean obviously it's going to take a lot to get back to that so Mm -hmm. we're just trying to push back some of the stuff that maybe shouldn't be there um in that eco region um a lot of the non-native stuff you know the fescue the brome the tree the hedge the locust the cedar trees that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. um the idea to get it back to pre-european settlement is probably a pie in the sky never going to happen but you know uh, maybe an ultimate lifelong many generations from now (laughs) goal but (laughs) yeah but or so kind of like a guiding yeah 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 goal but not realistic 
probably overall. Well, and what I'm hearing is what's going to have the most value for wildlife. Right. Mm -hmm. And if, if it's not providing value, at least make sure that it's not taking away from wildlife. So get like getting rid of some of those things that you said, you know, don't have a lot of wildlife value. So, yeah. Well, and can you talk about for listeners who are maybe thinking, well, what management, well, can I just let nature take over? Like what, because the fun hills are sort of special in Tallgrass Prairie too, in terms of management. Can you talk about that and what, why a person would need to manage? Sure. Yeah. So management, I mean, we, we think of it with a human context, but management in, in a more research context is we're thinking about disturbance. Um, you know, the Flint Hills and, and grasslands in general have been, were born on disturbance, and the biggest disturbance in these grasslands in the Central Prairie was fire. Um, and so fire would have naturally set everything back to a grassland state. And so as things got thicker and, and woody vegetation started coming on more, um, you'd see a big roaring fire go through. This would be historical, again, before European settlement. Um, you know, Native Americans were here. They loved fire. Um, they used to be able to move bison around with the fire. And that's, you know, ideally what we could see potentially in the Flint Hills is moving cattle around with fire. And so that's kind of a management. Cattle are also a management tool. They can be. Not only could they be, obviously, your, your production value on the land, but they can be very well a management tool because grasslands were always always had browsers and grazers on it. Um, it's just they were able to move a lot more freely because they didn't have fences. And so mm-hmm. um, trying to manage those cattle as if they didn't have a fence, you know, which sounds odd, but, you know, it can be done. So, yeah, that's what we talk about management is more just on a disturbance scale. Okay. But I think Oklahoma Extension Office warned, uh, coined it or somebody coined it as the green wave. You know, I, I mean, yes, the prairie is green, too, in certain times of the year, but... Um, Cedar trees being one of those ones that's green all the time, um, their encroachment has gotten worse and worse. And, and some of that is because of lack of fire. Now, in the Flint Hills, especially the central part of the Flint Hills, that's not the case. A lack of fire is not, as it, not an issue. Um, sometimes there's an issue of too much fire, which we can get into here in a second. Um, but, you know, as you get into the further outskirts of the Flint Hills, like northern part up closer to Manhattan, southern part down closer to... Um, Winfield, Cali County into Oklahoma, um, for some reason that trend, as we talked about, of fire and, and fire in the culture is not as prominent. And I think it's possibly because you get closer to urban areas. So Manhattan up, up in the northern part and then uh, Wichita and, and Winfield and those areas down in the southern part. Um, and so the fire culture is not as good as it is in the central part of the Flint Hills where there's really not a big urban area. Emporia is probably the closest um, and so, um, the, the trees, the tree encroachment and that fire culture does seem to be going away. Um, that, that scale seems to be slowing, I think, at least from a trend standpoint in my area, I am seeing more and more landowners that maybe didn't use fire starting to kind of pick it up and say, okay, maybe fire is a good thing. You know, I'm realizing that I've got this huge forest of cedar trees, um, not good for cattle, you know, not, so not good for grazing, um, not good, you know, for deer even at some point, you know, and then not definitely not good for turkey and quail and, and all these other species that I used to see out on this property. Um, and so they're realizing that maybe fire is a, a good tool to have. Some of them a little scary, you know, they're, they're, they're worried about fire, sure. which they should be. I mean, yeah. <laughs> respect it. Yeah, definitely <laughs> need to respect it. And so they're, they're getting into that, which is good. Um, 
but that's still not fixing this other tree problem that we have, which is hedge trees and, and locust trees, um, which fire doesn't necessarily hit as hard. Oh, really? Right. And okay. So what's the management strategy for that then? So Those. most of the time that's going to be a chemical thing. Oh, okay. Um, once they get a certain height. Now you can definitely set back the younger ones with fire, especially if you've got enough fuel. And that's, that's another thing, um, especially even in the central part of the Flint Hills where there is plenty of fire. Oftentimes, we, because they're burning every year, the fuel load is not as high. And so that makes sense. You're not getting as hot of a fire or as volatile of a fire that would have normally killed, top killed or completely killed a hedge or a locust tree. Now it's not doing anything to them. Um, and so they're able to get a little taller. And once they get a little taller, then the cattle hang out around it. And then you're even more keeping fire away from them um, because the cattle have now stomped down everything underneath of it. And so a fire doesn't even go underneath of it and protects it. And so then you get the seed production and all this other stuff. And so that's, that's the trend there where we're starting to see with these hedge and locust trees encroaching into the central part of the Flint Hills. So it's not as much of a cedar tree issue in the central part as it is a hedge and locust tree and maybe even some elm in there too. Um, but the cedar tree is definitely encroaching on the northern and the southern end. So it's a, it's a battle from a lot of different directions. Um, and so, yeah. And so that's, that's the trends. If we want to talk about trend, the trends are definitely... I am starting to see more fire being put on the ground um, in certain areas. Um, and I am starting to see, even in the central part of the Flint Hills, a little less annual burning um, and a little more of a rotational burning, which is great. We're starting to see that. Um, other, other trends we're starting to see, um, a change in the timing of the burns. Um, some people, are a lot of ranchers are realizing that I don't have to burn in the first week of April every year. Um, maybe I can start expanding that burn window into the late summer, early fall. Um, and that has a benefit of um, helping to um, set back a lot of those woody trees, such as the hedge and locust, more because that fire gets a lot hotter in August. Um, even though it's not as volatile, it's a lot hotter because the temperature, their temperatures are a lot hotter and the grass is a lot greener. So there's a lot more steam associated with it. And that steam is what gets it really hot. I had no idea. Yeah, I didn't there's, either. There's a lot yeah. of science behind fire. Yeah. It's crazy. I feel like this is another episode topic we need pyro, to delve into. Yes. Pyrobotany. Yeah, yeah. You need to get a pyro person in here. That'd be awesome. I thought that was you. Oh, no. <laughs> I know I know enough to be dangerous on the on yeah. the fire stuff. So but yeah, so and the other thing they're seeing with those late summer, early early fall burns is the um, effect it has on the the noxious weed Cerisia lespediza, which is really bad in the eastern part of the state. Um it is out west, but not in the uh, abundance that it is in the eastern part of the state, and it has a tendency to just take over whole fields. Um, and so that, that late summer burn and um, definitely sets it back, um, allows for zero seed production that year, which is great, gets you one step ahead. Um, and then that next year, you can really hit it hard with chemical. Okay. Wow, that's a lot. Just out of curiosity, those noxious weeds you just mentioned, is that a direct result of burning not taking place on the landscape, or is there any correlation there? The cerisia? Um, No, no, I don't, I I think. Like it's going to pop up no matter what? It is. Okay. Yeah, um, because cattle really, they'll eat it when it's young right after a burn, and so even when you burn in April, you know, you'll set it back, and the cattle will eat it, but at some point the they're called tannin levels um, in it, which is kind of a, um, it's a chemical or, or a, 
Is it like wine? Because there's tannins. In yeah, it. it is. It's the same kind of tannins <laughs> yeah. in wine. Yeah, like the acidity, the the yeah. the bite, and they just don't they they can't digest it as well. The cattle can't, mm. and so at some point during the during the early summer, they just stop eating it, and then it allows it to grow up, and you get seed. Okay, and, and it produces a ton of seed. Just one plant. You're, you're talking thousands and thousands of seeds. Wow. Yeah, and so um, so it's going to be there, and and. The Flint, people in the Flint Hills and eastern Kansas in general have been fighting it for many, many years and not feeling like they're getting anywhere. And so the, the research that came out of K-State and Oklahoma State showing that these late summer burns are helping, um, I think hmm. they're excited to try it, some of them. That's so, great to hear. Yeah. So I guess what I'm hearing, if I could summarize all that is, and I'll try to... I just want to say landscape heterogeneity, which is too fancy very and technical fancy. of a word, but variation in the different types and timing of management is going to lead to more biodiversity and more native biodiversity. Yeah. Right? That's great. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So that's your goal. Yeah. In all this work. Mm-hmm. Done. Podcast thanks thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us, guys. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> what are you worried about the most? Oh, probably that tree encroachment. Um, I, I, I feel like there is, um, there's a lot of people that believe that trees um, are great for hunting. And so we tend to see even the landowners that really want to do good things in the prairie, they still leave some areas of trees where maybe they shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Um, whether they are just hedge or locusts, you know, they're like, well, if I didn't have this hedge or locust draw, I wouldn't have deer. deer I wouldn't yeah, have turkey, you know. And so um, there, there is that, that connotation that, that trees equal deer and trees equal turkey, um, which, you know, in the Flint Hills, I, honestly, I've seen some of the biggest deer I've ever seen out in the wide open prairie of the Flint Hills. It makes them harder to hunt. Sure. But mm. they're there and they're huge. Um, and, and a lot of our really big deer the last several years have come out of the Flint Hills counties. And really? so, yeah. So, I mean, there's something to be said there. So how do you reconcile that? If, if a landowner asks you to come on out and they're saying, hey, I really want to improve my habitat, um, here are the reasons why I want to improve it. And they, you know, just like you said, maybe they really want to see those trees stay on their property, but you know that that's not what's most native to that area or what that area used to be like how do you reconcile that or how do you how do you manage that well to some extent I try to point them to other options um you know the reason the deer are heading towards the trees is for that cover we have other options that could be just as good a cover for those deer and those are really nice shrub thickets you know we're missing like I said earlier we're missing a lot of the shrub component in the Flint Hills and a lot of that's the annual burning um, but also a lot of spraying for cerecia and so if we can change those so we're not annually burning every year and, you know, we're not aerially spraying the, the Flint Hills and killing all the shrubs, then, you know, we can plant some shrubs. We can, you know, have really good shrub thickets. And, you know, I've had seen plenty of deer bedding down and moving through shrub thickets that can get 12 feet tall. Or 12 feet, yeah, <laughs> 10 yeah. to 12 feet tall. Would it be safe to say that the shrubs probably develop a lot quicker than a tree would anyway? Like if you were planting something new or do shrubs take equally as long. I'm just 
depends on the tree. Okay. Some, some of our trees, those hedge and locusts can grow pretty fast. Oh, do they? Okay. Yeah. And cedar trees, I mean, you're talking a cedar tree can grow a foot yeah. a year if it's got good rainfall. Yeah. Maybe down in the southern Flint Hills this year, not so much. <laughs> we're, we're very, very dry. <laughs> but yeah, they uh, they can grow pretty fast. And I mean, not saying shrubs wouldn't establish pretty quickly too, but you're probably not going to have a 12 foot tall shrub thicket in the same time frame you'd probably have a cedar tree forest mm, interesting unfortunately so yeah cedar tree forest man <laughs> and don't they acidify the soil too like nothing's going to grow under it it definitely changes the soil composition for sure so but the, the one research i always like to point to people is missouri department of conservation and maybe university of missouri i don't remember which university or missouri state i don't know um did a research project on um, size of deer compared to canopy cover. And so they showed that the um, the more dense the canopy cover was, the smaller the deer antlers. Huh, that's interesting. So in inches. So something to think about out there for you hunters out there. Yeah, <laughs> you find so it, link at it. At some point, there is a, a point where too much canopy cover, too much tree cover um, is not beneficial. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of that is deer don't eat cedar trees. Mm-hmm. Deer don't, you know, they might browse a little bit on hedge trees, not really on locust trees, you know, so you're losing a lot of that good food source that would normally have grown there if it didn't have a tree shading it out or changing the soil composition or whatever. And so there's something to be said about that. Mm. So I'm, <laughs> look at me, I'm just like, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Nadia's staring at me. When I, I told Nadia, when I, came up with a few of these questions for this interview, I was in a really dark place. <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> because I'm reading, have you, do you read Dan Flores? Are you familiar with that author? I'm not. He wrote Coyote America and American Serengeti, and his latest one is called Wild New World, and the first chapter is all about the species that we've lost mm-hmm. in North America, Heath Hen, mm-hmm. Carolina parakeet. Um, he talks about passenger pigeon and how we had passenger pigeons in these huge numbers for 50,000 years, and then in the last 150, they're gone. And so I'm wondering, if we look the other way as trees encroach on grasslands, which a lot of us are doing, what do we stand to lose? The, the biggest one are a lot of our grassland birds. I think that's going to be the biggest, the, the most noticeable one. Now, there are other grassland species that maybe are not as charismatic, you know, some of the um, snakes and, you know, the reptiles, amphibians that, that really do live in the grasslands as well um, that people don't necessarily think about. But the grassland birds are the ones that a lot of people see all the time and, and know about. I mean, even the meadowlark. Other people don't think of the meadowlark declining, but it is. Um, and so a species like the meadowlark and, and even more charismatic species, a species like the prairie chicken, um, we're going to lose them. They don't, they don't like trees. Um, yes, you might see a meadowlark pitch in a tree. You might see a prairie chicken pitch in a tree. But when you're talking nesting and you're talking raising their young and having in- insects to feed them, um, you're not going to get that in a woodland. And so you're going to see more and more of the woodland species um, growing, which we are seeing um, uh, when we talk about doing breeding bird surveys and, and whatnot in Kansas or even across the Great Plains. We're seeing more and more woodland species and less and less grassland species. That's heavy. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it speaks to Dan Flores, again, from this book, he writes, we run the risk of having a, a simplified and devastated earth. And that just really hits me to think about. And when I, when I think about that, I think of a cedar forest. Mm. So the biodiversity is so low. Yeah. So. 
Yeah, at some point, I mean, you do see an increase in biodiversity as you increase the types of habitat and having a tree there or even a couple trees, a tree row, increases the type of habitat that a, a normal just solid prairie would have. So you do have a increase in biodiversity briefly, but as that tree row continues to expand like we're seeing it do, you start to, at some point, you tip the other direction to where you're going a, little, a, a lot more away from any grassland species and a lot more towards just a forested species, especially if it's just a single type of tree, you know, just a cedar tree. You know, that is, that's the example of that simple, mm -hmm. simplified ecosystem. Yeah. So we've talked quite a bit about, you know, the, the challenges you're noticing on the landscape and the issues that we have at hand. I'm curious, um, what is it that gives you hope? Like, what are you seeing trend-wise that you're like, you know what, this is really positive. I'm really glad that, you know, we have landowners latching onto this, or maybe it's, it's new research. What is it that's making you hopeful for the future of conservation? Yeah, I've got landowners that, you know, that give me hope every day. Like, when I meet with them, uh, the, the ones that are willing to, that you can tell actually listen um, and are soaking everything in, you know, maybe they don't take action right away, like the first year or two, they're just soaking it in. They'll call me like that year, every year, you know, and say, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think? You know, and they'll run stuff by me or um, those types of people. And then when they actually do take that action um, and start implementing some of the newer, you know, they're willing to step out of the box from what their neighbors are doing. And even though their neighbors look at them like they're crazy, yeah. <laughs> um, they're willing to try it, you know, and maybe it works, maybe it doesn't work. And uh, and if it doesn't work, they're willing to tweak it and not necessarily just completely throw it out the window and say, it doesn't work, I'm not doing it. Um, those are the types of people that give me hope, those, those landowners. Uh, and it's not just those hunters, you know, that are willing to say, okay, at some point, you know, this is too much, you know. And so they're, they're willing to help the landowners that they work on, you know, do good things for all wildlife, not just deer, you know, because they realize that, you know, having quail is, is beneficial or having turkey is beneficial or having prairie chicken is beneficial. Um, and so those, those types of people give me hope. The ones that realize that, that it's not, they're not just so tunnel vision, tunnel vision yeah. on deer and deer is the only thing they care about, you know? And so deer are great. I deer hunt. Don't get me wrong. I love to hunt. I love to deer hunt. Um, it's just, you got to get out of that tunnel vision. It's not always about deer and it's not always about the big deer, you know, there's, there's a lot more to Kansas than deer hunting. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, what can the general public, e even if they're not landowners, what can they do to help? So, so the, if they're not landowners, the general public, I'm um, getting involved. Um, we've got Pheasants Forever chapters, National Wild Turkey Federation chapters, Rocky Mountain Oak Foundation, um, those types of chapters that money stays, a lot of that money stays local into Kansas um, and can be used um, by landowners or by other hunters, you know, to help do good things on the land. Um, you know, there's a lot of, um, it, it does seem like money, this does seem to be the one to answer, but time you know if you know a, a, a farmer a rancher that's looking to cut trees or, or looking to improve wildlife habitat if you just give them some of your time go help them girdle some trees or plant some native grass or you know whatever I mean that that's a little bit goes a long way there for sure um another question I have is if there was one myth about habitat management that you would like to debunk if there's a misconception that just keeps coming up, what would it be? 
Well, I think we already mentioned that deer trees equal deer ah. okay. <laughs> or trees equal big deer. Yeah. Yeah. Which they don't No, I mean, I, I think our that's not what the science is, is telling yeah. us. It's nuanced, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, at some level, yes, you're going to see more deer with more trees, but that, that doesn't necessarily equate to bigger deer. And so if your ultimate goal is that big buck, a solid forest of cedar and hedge trees is not is not going to do that for you, um, and so yeah, that's that's probably the biggest one. Yeah, and and yeah, and I'm also gathering too that there's a difference between what might attract wildlife and what actually provides value to the species. Yeah, yeah, hmm. yeah, yeah. That's well a put. good one. Yeah. So deer, you know, when we talk about deer again, corridors or where we see them in the wintertime, or even when we talk about quail, I get this a lot. Um, a lot of people think that, you know, to some level, cedar trees or a hedgerow or something is really beneficial to quail because that's where we see them when we hunt them. But when you're actually talking what do quail need and why the quail are declining, there's plenty of research that points to the quail are declining because they don't have nesting and places to raise their young. And they're not raising their young or nesting under that hedgerow. They're just using that as um, winter cover. Mm -hmm. And so having more hedgerows is not going to get us more quail, only because you see them there in the wintertime. That's often a a myth I I, I have to debunk all the time with hunters that are trying to improve their own land. Yeah. um, Is what do you, what you see in the wintertime when you're hunting, because that's all, the only time we hunt is the fall and winter, is not what these animals are using in the, in the spring and summer. So I definitely encourage people to get out there in the spring and summer and figure out what those clay are using then, or even the turkeys. I've never even thought about that's that. That's a pro tip, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. I'm curious on a personal level, just because I want to be friends with you, <laughs> um, what kind of, are you working towards any personal goals or challenges related to work or not, Ugh. or hunting or... <laughs> Right now, just getting into shape. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and trying not to grow old. I feel yeah, so old. Yeah, me too. <laughs> now, I mean, uh, hunting related, I I've just started picking up a bow. And so bow hunting for deer, I've, I've never done it. I attempted last year unsuccessfully. Um, so, yeah, that's that's kind of a personal goal of mine is to try to take my first deer with a bow. Um, I, I was definitely a late onset hunter. As I said, I didn't grow up hunting. Um, I didn't actually hunt until I first came to Kansas and I started with dove and pheasant and quail with my in-laws out in western Kansas um, and then shot my first deer when I started working for the department when my mm-hmm. uh, my boss actually took me out. Oh so. my god mm. our stories are near identical yeah. um, except it wasn't in-laws taking me out and uh, I came from the west coast not the east coast. Oh, well, yeah yeah. <laughs> but yeah didn't take my first deer till I worked for the department and my boss got me into it yeah and uh, yeah eventually I got into bow hunting that was awesome yeah so just a micro step ahead a yeah, micro a little, step, little step and i'm a micro step behind because i haven't bought a bow yet but, but i would want like next to. thing next thing yeah yeah sweet i love that goal yeah it's a good one mm-hmm. is there anything else that you want to add to this episode that you want people to know that we haven't talked about uh, i guess we didn't really talk too much into flowers i don't have you guys talked pollinators much on a podcast recently not um, recently. No, we had, um, gosh, who do we have on? Brad Gurr from Dick Arboretum okay, to kind of talk yeah. us through native plants. But yeah. yeah, give us your, do you have uh, some suggestions for what to plant or what's your favorite or what are you seeing? Well, yeah, I mean, whenever we talk about planting native grasses, I mean, we always say native grasses, but it's mm-hmm. native grasses and forbs. We always 
put those in there. There's definitely some that make a mix cheaper and are more likely to come up um, that are really beneficial for, for pollinators and for, for songbirds and whatnot that are eating the seeds. And so things like Maximilian sunflowers or any of the sunflowers, you know, do really well coming up and tend to be fairly cheap as far as the mix is concerned. Um, Illinois bundleflower and partridge pea, really good at coming up and typically always put them in mixes. Um, and then smaller things, Coreopsis, you know, is really good for a pollinator um, and some of the asters really well so yeah I, I always want to mention that like if you're putting in any kind of native plants or even I mean some people really are, are stuck on you got to have a brome waterway you could still put in flowering plants with that brome and still have a little bit more beneficial than just a non-native sea of grass yeah <laughs> so think about that too throwing in some pollinating plants um because a lot of those plants are really beneficial to the soil too they they help with the 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 nitrogen fixing um and other phosphorus levels in the soil too so they could be beneficial to even that brome that you're putting in there yeah and pollinators and and uh, the two that you mentioned illinois bundle flower and partridge pea aren't those good quail mm-hmm. food yeah really good seed seeds source. okay yeah great well, Ficky, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the work that you do. You know, something we haven't even talked about, and I feel like it needs to be mentioned before we before we end this episode, is you are a minority in your role in this agency. How many other women are private lands biologists? There's been more of us. I was the second that I know of, maybe the third. Um, but now I think there's four or five of us. Do you hear that, listeners? Four or five for the entire state of Kansas. For um, the private lands division, yeah, there's 27 yeah. of us, I think. So mm-hmm. that's my challenge to listeners is that we change that number. Mm-hmm. So if you're somebody who's considering the natural resource conservation field and uh, you hear those numbers and they bother you just as much as they bother me, we need to change that. So consider telling a friend about this as um, a potential career and look at all the different ways that you've been able to you know, use your degree, whether it's wildlife, it's, it's people management, it's habitat management, it's all of these different things. So I think that is so cool. And I'd love to have the opportunity to interview more people like you, Vicki. Thank you. And come to becoming an outdoor woman and take my trailer class. Yes. Yeah. yeah. We're going to do yeah, that. Need, I've already done it. I'm a graduate. <laughs> oh, yeah. She's okay. pro. You can do it. All right. Well, Flatlanders, remember flat is a state of mind. mind. Where, where were you? Where were Flatlander Podcast is made possible through a partnership between the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks and the Kansas Wildlife Federation. Sound and production by Megan Mayhew. Music by Kansas locals, The Box Turtles. Become a member of KWF for free by visiting kansaswildlifefederation.org. And be sure to follow KWF on Facebook at Kansas Wildlife Federation and on Instagram at KS Wildlife Fed. Stay up to date on all things KDWP by following the department on Facebook at Kansas Wildlife and Parks and on Instagram at the KDWP. Remember, the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks is supported by flatlanders like you through the sale of licenses and permits. Consider buying a hunting or fishing license today to conserve and protect the wild spaces and faces that make Kansas more than flyover country.